0: good morning
1: yeah hi can i um can you ring me back in about five i'm just finishing the breakfast after the media calls yeah no problem
0: at all we'll call back in five okay
1: bye coronavirus new zealand a daily stuff podcast
2: Welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Friday the 17th of April. I'm Adam Dudding.
0: And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main stories, glimpses of some of the strange things about life under lockdown, and a closer look at one particular topic.
2: Today we bring you an extended interview with former Prime Minister and United Nations Development Programme Leader Helen Clark.
0: But first, what's happened today? Just eight new cases today, but two further deaths. A man in his 90s and a woman in her 80s. The man had a connection to the Matamata outbreak, which you remember was that St Patrick's Day party, and the woman from Rosewood. So that's seven people dead from Rosewood. Now Grant Robertson was the government minister at the press conference where all this was announced. I really got the sense from him that he was trying to dampen things down. You know, there's this hope after the announcements yesterday with what Level 3 is going to look like, that, okay, it's a given, we're going to move in. And he was sort of saying, no, 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 we're still waiting for information and we need that information. And if the information comes back over the weekend before it goes to Cabinet that says, look, we need to stay in Level 4, that's what they're going to do.
2: Yeah, lockdown fatigue's a global thing. The British government has just said that it's going to push out its national lockdown for at least three more weeks. Currently, Britain's recording around 700 COVID deaths each day. But officials say the UK outbreak may be close to peaking. Peaking, sure, but that means at best they've still got some very grim times ahead.
0: And in New Zealand, a think tank, Koi 2 has put out a report predicting some of the social after-effects of COVID-19. They reckon that the post-pandemic recession is likely to lead to feelings of resentment, sense of winners and losers. It's also pretty dark about future rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, PTSD, all as a result of unemployment or ill health. Our email inbox, our email is viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Don't forget, so we had one from Wendy who had a question for Tom Kitchen, who remember was the... Stuff reporter who got coronavirus and we interviewed him a couple of weeks back. She says, while unwell, he stayed in the flat with flatmates and he used a common kitchen. Uh, I'm really interested to know if any of Tom's flatmates became unwell. So we asked him and he came back and he said, look, one of my flatmates had a really minor cold, basically, or symptoms of a minor cold, runny nose, scratchy throat, but they were tested as a precaution, but the results came back negative. The other one had no symptoms at all and hadn't been tested. So there you go.
2: What else is in the inbox?
0: Well, Hi Adam and Eugene begins another one. I'll dare to open an extremely touchy subject. It's from Ross Matthews and it's on the topic of this balancing act between health and the economy. And he writes, One thing that really worries me, the people making the decisions about our future, i.e. politicians, civil servants and the police, they'll all still have their jobs when this lockdown is over. People losing their jobs, their homes possibly, their hard-fought businesses gone in the blink of an eye will have serious health issues down the track from this. Broken marriages, domestic abuse, financial stress. It's never black and white, guys. But listening to our PM, you would think that this is all just going to be okay if we're kind to one another. So that's, that's one view from Ross. There are others in the inbox who you could say are on the other side calling for, in fact... Keith Hibbs calling for even harder measures than we already have. He says, bring in the army. He says, we should use the army to deal with people who are flouting the rules. You know, for instance, ones about not staying local, you know, if they're, they're heading off up country and so on. Put the army on roadblocks. Anyone caught doing this, confiscate their cars, campervans, boats, have them crushed. I know just the politician to put that policy through, actually, just thinking. The return of Crusher Collins, eh? Plague playlist. Yeah,
2: this one's by popular demand, actually. We've had two emails. Two separate emails from two different humans One from Romy One from Daniela Both suggesting that we go and have a listen To some songs from a South African guy Called The Kiffness He's done heaps of song parodies With a COVID-19 theme We liked several of them actually But today we're going to go with this one
0: I'm going to call it That's the first banger from the plague
2: playlist. Did you notice it's a song not only about COVID-19, but also about banana bread? So that's nice. Just before today's interview, some reminders. Helen Clark was our Prime Minister for nine years, you might recall. And then in 2009, she went to the United Nations and was the boss of the UN development program. Huge job. Uh, She was a contender for the top, top, top job at the UN, the Secretary General, but didn't quite make it. Uh, And then her UNDP post ended in 2017.
0: Since then, she's not exactly been taking it easy. And since COVID struck, she's been tapping this unbelievable network of high-powered political contacts from all over the world that she's built up for decades. Basically, she's having a crack at getting on top of a global pandemic from the comfort of her home in Auckland. And she's not holding back either. She's been calling
2: out the failure of global leadership and organisation at a time when, you know, global leadership, global pandemic, we, we could do with that. And so she's right in the middle of some pressure campaigns to get the G20, the UN and the World Bank, the IMF, and all the rest of them basically to
0: just sharpen up. Anyway, after a couple of false starts, we got her on the line. Hi there. Hi there. It's actually fortuitous that we had to ring you back because immediately I hung up from you. I had a power cut. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Suddenly cut off. But it's come back, so I'm not quite sure what happened. But how how are you? Are you... Assuming you're in Auckland,
1: I'm in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Um, I'm actually twenty four seven on um, <laughs> COVID nineteen. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs>
0: it must be heartbreaking for you, especially New York, where you spent so much time seeing the.
1: Oh yeah, seeing, seeing what's happened to the city, and and also seeing you know the utter dysfunction that we all know about at the Security Council, mm. lead to it being completely unable to uh, take any useful um, initiative whatsoever.
2: International cooperation has hit a real low in the past few years. COVID-19 picked a hell of a time to arrive, don't you think?
1: This horrific pandemic has arrived at a particularly low point for multilateralism when the UN system has been under a lot of attack uh, from uh, some governments. And so uh, right now we have a President of the United States who uh, actively moves to defund and even withdraw from international organisations that he disagrees with. Uh, The same president is currently chair of the G7 for the year, the most powerful economies in the world. And then the G20 is led by Saudi Arabia. So it's a perfect storm of weak leadership in places where you might normally expect uh, people to step up and take on this challenge head on.
0: If we can just break it down a bit. So you, you left... United Nations Development Programme in 2017, but you've been involved in the last few months, as we say, and we just want to step you through the things you've done. So you were involved with the letter to the G20. First of all, how does a letter like that come about? So
1: I've kept a tremendous amount of International associations. I chair various uh, boards uh, that are intergovernmental and with wide civil society participation. And I stay very linked with networks of former leaders and prime ministers, and of course with many serving uh, officials in the UN system itself. So when a crisis like this uh, arises, you tend to in my position, be very networked into it. Uh, And that included in mid-February, actually being in Geneva for events at WHO. And I did actually meet Dr Tedros twice uh, privately at that time and and was very much privy to his thinking about the the pandemic. So I've been following this as it's unfolded on our news screens as a big story, uh, really from around the time of the declaration of the pandemic as a public health emergency of international concern. That was 30th of January. And then I suppose people thought that the wise advice uh, the WHO was giving about what needed to be done would be followed. But the horror really is that by and large, the, the rich and powerful countries of the North sat by and watched this Epidemic playing out in China and in some other parts of, of Asia as if it was never going to happen to them. And then when it did, they were caught absolutely flat footed. And we have seen some of the world's greatest and most powerful economies brought to their knees by this. And the distressing death toll and scenes, you know, playing out on our TV night after night. Thank heaven, uh, that's not what we're exposed to personally here in New Zealand because of the strategy that the the government's taken with broad political support. So as it became more and more obvious that there was uh, no global leadership on all the aspects of the pandemic, uh, the only leadership coming from WHO, which can only deal with it as a health crisis, but this had developed into a full-blown economic and social crisis. A number of us began to rally to get letters away to key decision-makers.
0: On the G20 letter, first of all, what's astonishing is is it sets out in very clear detail a a roadmap through the crisis, doesn't
1: it? Yes, so the the G20 letter was brought together by Gordon Brown, who reached out to me for support to get wide buy-in for it, which I was very happy to do. And what uh, Gordon's letter does is set out a precise agenda of what needs to happen. Let's be realistic here. We're not, we're talking about a, a package, really, of some $2 trillion. Mm. It, it's twice what was needed for uh, dealing with the global financial crisis. And Gordon Brown rallied uh, the major colonies of the world to inject funding into the IMF, and the World Bank at that time to stop the global economy going over the cliff. Now, you know, we're over the cliff again, mm. and that's why the response needs to be so large. And we just have to shout to we're horse that if there is not a coordinated global response, the impact on every single one of us is dire. For New Zealand, we will sit here safe behind our cordon of hundreds of, of miles of sea. But we need a functioning and prosperous world economy for us to make our full recovery. Mm. And that's nowhere in sight at the moment.
0: The letter makes a very valid point too, that even if you're in a rich country say, and you don't particularly care about poor nations as they struggle to face COVID-19, you better care about what happens there because it's going to re-emerge from those countries and bite us all again if we don't help them deal with it.
1: That's correct. And... Uh, Professor Lawrence Goston from Washington, D.C., who was on Channel 4 News with me uh, today, uh, he makes the point that if we cannot now work to stop the worst effects of the pandemic playing out in sub-Saharan Africa, then the countries of the north who are experiencing this terrible distress with the first wave will get up to four waves of this because it will keep cycling around Mm. again. So, you know, maybe, you know, Spain, Italy are now on a downward trend, still, of course, hundreds of deaths a day. Uh, But this first wave will eventually um, peter out. But then it will come back and it will come back and come back Mm. until we deal with it Uh, decisively by supporting countries with very limited means to do so.
2: Right. So let's move to this other letter you were involved in writing. This one was to the United Nations Security Council. So can you start, uh, before we get to the letter, by explaining what the Security Council did during the Ebola crisis of 2014? During the Ebola crisis, as word
1: came out as to how serious it was, and, and Remember, this was not an epidemic in which the WHO had covered itself in glory. It was widely seen to have been too late to act. Uh, And actually, the major review that was done of it after that put it in a much better position to take on this much more widespread crisis that we're facing today. So when the WHO finally pushed the panic button and presidents in the three affected West African states pressed the panic button, particularly President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia, who had direct access to President Obama. Obama got it that we were all in danger if this epidemic broke out of three fragile countries in West Africa. And so apart from pumping in megabucks, literally, into the relief response, He had his ambassador, Samantha Power, drive up and through the Security Council a resolution declaring Ebola to be a threat to global peace and security and calling on member states to do whatever they could uh, to see off this threat. Now, that's a very powerful signal because Security Council resolutions are binding. On, on member states. The UN itself actually mounted a special mission. It had never had anything like this, a special health mission uh, to coordinate... The UN's response and a lot of the international response
2: as well. Right. So, so you've so you've now co-written a letter to the UN Security Council. What what are you asking for in that letter?
1: We are asking uh, the senior women who have been around the system. We are saying that the Security Council must do now what was done in 2014, and I might say following. Uh, Uh, The worst of the epidemic in 2014 with Ebola at UNDP, uh, I and the organization led uh, the recovery phase for the three countries and uh, organized the major pledging conference in New York and so on. Because, you know, right now we're in the white heat of of an epidemic, but then economies have to recover and whether you can support them to recover and adjust an equitable way is quite a big question.
2: One of the really interesting things about that letter, of course, is that it was signed exclusively by women. Why Why was that?
1: That's because we have formed a group of former senior women in the UN system. It's led by three of us who actually were all candidates for Secretary General. Susanna Malkora from Argentina and Irina Bakova from Bulgaria. And we began to get very concerned more than a year ago about the attacks on the multilateral system by presidents um, from the U.S. to Brazil and beyond. And we said someone's got to stick up for the multilateral system. So we do stick up for it. We are well aware of its faults, and we like to see it do well. Hence the letter to the Security Council to say, you shouldn't be messing around
2: here. This is an incredible crisis. Well, not to get all gender essentialist here, but it has been pointed out that some of the fastest and arguably most effective responses have been from female leaders. You've got Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, uh, Chancellor Merkel in Germany, President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan, and there's also the female leaders in Finland and Iceland. So do you have any thoughts on why women seem to be doing a good job?
1: I think it's because they're, they're very much you know, putting a, a human face to it. They're saying, we don't want what we are seeing in other countries playing out in our country. We're going to really act on this. I think, for me, one of the most disturbing things about some of the debate uh, about how to approach the epidemic is that from the people who say, oh, it's so terrible to have these lockdowns, it's harming the economy. What we know beyond doubt is that if there is a bungled public health response, economies will be damaged more deeply and for longer. Imagine, for example, if New Zealand hadn't locked down, if we'd carried on going around our business, if people had kept travelling into our country, bringing the virus with them. Imagine if our public health system had been overwhelmed. Does anyone really seriously think that our economy would have prospered? It was going to be in difficulties, with this pandemic, whatever we did, what we're doing actually minimises the consequences. Doesn't maximise the consequences for the economy.
2: You were talking earlier about uh, Trump's attacks on the the WHO. So he's been criticising it from his, his bully pulpit, but also you know actually talking about reducing US funding. To me, that looked partly like a total tantrum and uh, an attempt to divert attention from his own failures. But what does it mean practically for the WHO to have Trump attacking it and talking about taking away money?
1: So the US is the biggest contributor. Uh, the irony is that a lot of the money it puts into the WHO is for... Uh, specific purposes like polio eradication. That says to me that he really doesn't have a clue what he's talking about when he attacks WHO and the US uh, funding. uh, He stands, uh, if he follows through with this, to be denying the world the opportunity to completely eradicate a disease like polio, uh, which should be consigned to the dustbin uh, of history. This very much looks like a temper tantrum by uh, someone who hasn't handled the pandemic well in his own country and is looking for others to blame. So the WHO becomes a convenient Sally in, in that respect. I think uh, the only problem for the, the WHO with respect to the USA has been that the, the president consistently refused to follow the advice that it and his own senior health advisers were giving him.
2: Um, amid that temper tantrum though, isn't there a nugget of truth that to some extent the World Health Organization was steamrolled by the Chinese government early on and this meant some opportunities to combat COVID were missed early on? Is that fair?
1: No, I don't
2: buy that argument. The WHO was informed on
1: the 31st of December by Beijing uh, that there was this uh, new form of pneumonia. What we don't know is how long before that Beijing knew. We know that it was known in Wuhan, but the word doesn't always go up from the regions to Beijing because they worry about the repercussions. So whatever, the WHO gets advised uh, it then uh, begins to take a series of actions. And by mid-January, uh, was publicly briefing uh, that there appeared to be human-to-human uh, transmission. It sent a mission to China as soon as it could get one in, which was the 22nd of January. And uh, around the same time, uh, the Director-General called together his emergency committee under the international health regulations. And that's what advises him on whether to declare a public health emergency of international concern. Now, that committee did not advise him to do that on the 22nd, 23rd January. It took another 10 days. The the Director General himself went to China and came back, uh, convened the committee again, and the declaration was made. And that then gave the WHO the basis for really going very, very hard with its uh, with its international guidance. I think it, it, there is an issue in that for China, which clearly is a highly, highly significant country in our world and one that you know aspires to uh, exercise global leadership. Uh, going forward, that global leadership won't be respected in any way if the country isn't open and transparent about an issue like this. The new virus with the capacity to go literally uh, viral and, and affect millions of people around the world is not something you can ever cover up. And
2: I think there's very serious lessons to China in this. I guess for context, it's worth mentioning that you're not a, a one-eyed defender of WHO under all circumstances because you said earlier they did bungle Ebola.
1: Correct. They bungled Ebola, uh, but they learned from that. And I think they have been proactive on this. But let's face it, they have to get access to China. They have to get access to their their data. Uh, You know, that when you're dealing with an autocratic and opaque system isn't easy either. So I think in the context, actually, they've done quite a good job. Now, President Trump's beef is they didn't support uh, a travel ban. Okay. Are we in New Zealand sulking that they didn't support our travel ban? Actually, the WHO doesn't take a position uh, in favour of anyone's travel ban, because what it worries about is that travel bans might uh, further impede the willingness of the country with the outbreak to tell you the truth. Uh, But I am absolutely clear in my mind that New Zealand was right to put the ban on for travel from China. Uh, I think it was a, a very, very timely move, and we also did it with uh, with Iran. But I think the geopolitics and trying to manage an epidemic like this is such that the WHO can't come out and endorse that, but people are going to do it anyway, and we did it to, you know, obviously the benefit of our people. <laughs> I think uh, that New Zealand, like, like everyone, uh, was in the position of, of learning by doing. Uh, let's face it, here we are talking on uh, the 16th of April. On the 16th of December, no one uh, outside China knew about this virus. On the 16th of January, uh, we'd only just heard Uh, that there was likely uh, to have been human-to-human transmission. Even two months ago, we didn't know much. So here we are, thankfully, at the end of the world (laughs) and the connection to uh, the transmission of a a virus like this. And we've had time to think and to listen to the best uh, advice, uh, not only from within New Zealand, but offshore. And I think uh, what you saw in New Zealand was initially... Uh, it was handled uh, under uh, epidemic uh, preparedness legislation that was put in place by my government after the lessons learned from SARS. Uh, so they activated the, um, you know, using that legislation and they started to work in line with uh, an influenza pandemic plan which sits in the books in New Zealand. But what became apparent was that this was not influenza. This was a completely different kind of beast that you were dealing with. And when it became clear that trying to manage it and manage seasonal peaks like one does with influenza just wasn't going to be tenable, that is when the New Zealand government changed to an elimination strategy. And that's the critical point where you could feel safe in New Zealand. You could know that the government was not going to let this run and, and expose the most vulnerable citizens in the country uh, to uh, a, you know, premature death uh, and, and serious illness. So I think learning by doing... Uh, listening to what was happening, absorbing the evidence from offshore, New Zealand's ended up in the right place.
0: You, You mentioned those earlier pandemics, those earlier issues, SARS and so on. It's not your first radio, as it were, as a former prime minister, but also as a health minister. You must have been thinking about pandemic planning for decades now. In all the years that you've thought about these things, did you ever imagine anything like this?
1: No, because we have not in our world seen anything like this. Even in the lifetime of my father, who's 98, uh, he lost an uncle in the uh, the, the pandemic flu of 1718, and I, I think also an, an aunt. Every family lost people in in that pandemic, uh, but it's a long time ago. And uh, by and large, these others that have played out. Swine flu infected an you know, incredible number of people, but it was not. Um, anything like mm. as, as, as deadly and uh, as, as this has proved to be. So also in our highly globalised and interconnected world, uh, we not only see the, the health impacts of a, of, a, of a very deadly virus like this, but also the economic impacts and associated with that, the, the social impacts. Now, if you take New Zealand's situation, uh, we have reasonably deep pockets because you know, governments have you know, looked after the, the, the war chest for a lot mm. of years that benefited us going into the global recession and it benefits us again. Now it's going to be painful getting rid of that debt, by the way, but at least we have the, the fiscal space to do it. But a lot of countries don't. We have the fiscal space uh, to look after the most the most vulnerable with the wage subsidies and benefits and so on. But one thing that is incredibly distressing to see coming out of uh, countries uh, a lot poorer than ours is poor people saying, with this lockdown, I'm going to die of hunger before I die of Mm COVID-19. And and so part of the response to a, a pandemic like this really has to be what we call social protection. The poor and hungry have to be fed you know, if your livelihood is taken away, you have to be looked after. We're able to do that. Many countries haven't a hope of doing it without international solidarity.
2: Uh, Well, you're a citizen of the world and you're stuck in the suburbs of Auckland for the foreseeable future. So what are you going to do next? Do you have any more letters planned? (laughs) When when are you going to next be on a plane?
1: Oh, I don't think that'll be for some time. And I think out of this experience, everyone's worked out you don't actually have to get on a plane that often. Uh, You can do an incredible amount through the uh, internet platforms. I I have two, uh, actually three organisations with uh, major international meetings that were due. They will be done on one of the platforms, whether it's uh, Zoom or or whether it's... uh, Teams or Skype or, or, or whatever. And these are all boards that I chair and they're quite large. So it's going to be an interesting experience, but already I'm, basically 24-7 at home, uh, working night shift uh, with, uh, with meetings and conference calls uh, around the world. And I must say, it's not unpleasant to be able to sit in one's rather nice Edwardian suburb of Auckland and walk the streets, which are, uh, are quite pleasant at this time of year and uh, enjoy being home.
0: Well, look, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and having that global view and giving a lot for people to think about, not just their own world, but the globe. That's right. We're all in it together. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, bye now.
0: That's the Coronavirus
2: NZ podcast for Friday, the 17th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Helen Clark, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld.
0: This is the end of our fourth week. Thanks for sticking with us, if that's what you've been doing. Or thanks for joining us, if this is episode one for you. If you want to get in touch, email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. You can find us on all the usual podcast platforms, plus the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Will this be our last weekend under level four?
2: Ooh. Quite